A little ying for my yang, I guess, man. I gotta pump you up. Here we go. We'll beat you to death with this mic stand. Cinematic community. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid man hole in the wall. Cinematic Cinematic community. You tell people not to swing the mic around. <laughs> that's, a good, that's, that's a good point. You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. Just been revoked. The art and craft of movie making, the stories that define it. Welcome to Cinematic Community, folks. I'm your host, Louis Normandon. With me is podcast producer and co-host, Brian Hart. I don't know what we're doing here. I just come, I show up, the mics are here, I talk, pretend like I'm angry at people, try to have a good time. What is life about? I'll tell you what life is about. Life is about sitting down with Jessica Burstein for Cinematic Community, as we did over in New York City at the local 600 office. We had a great time sitting down, just chatting with her about her extended experience with on-set photography. Jessica has had a wonderfully established career as an on-set photographer and had a lot of really good insight for all of you young photographers out there trying to get into the business, especially into the business of on-set photography. Uh, She clarified some different points that we had, some questions that we had. She answered some great questions about on-set protocol, if you're a camera assistant or another crew member, about how you can properly uh, follow protocol when it comes to taking photos of your own on-set. So make sure that you're not making anybody angry and that you're not crossing any lines. She did like 800 episodes of episodic television in the city, all the Law and Orders, all that Dick Wolf produced material, short for the Yankees. Yeah, that Yankee project she did seemed absolutely amazing. Jessica had a really great concept of how to get into the subject's head and photograph them in a way that makes sense with how the subject views themselves latching on to their charisma and persona to figure out what is the best way to photograph that subject. And she shared it with us. It was a great discussion, and I'm glad we had the time to sit down with her. She's written books, done exhibitions. We're always happy when we add a new job description to our group here. We hadn't had a still photographer on before. We discuss stills or still photographers, and it seems to be official both ways everywhere. We hope that every other interview gets a new category in. We're trying to That's fill our goal. We're trying to fill out the cinematic immunity rank and file to make sure that we cover all bases when it comes to the on-set technical and artistic professionals. I know we're doing a lot of camera people up front. You know, Lewis is in the camera department and I kind of came from the camera department, so we know a lot of people in the camera department. <laughs> but don't worry, we're running out of people that we know, so we're getting more and more into brand new and exciting people. So we're trying to get into the nether regions of the 600 crew members you see at the uh, end of the movie. We need to have some ADs on in here. That we do. Uh, Start to get in the production department to represent. Enough of this camera department nonsense. Cinematic Community definitely has a great lineup of guests that are going to be sitting down with us here in the very near future. So make sure you keep tuning in every week because no matter who you are, We've got somebody for you. And lastly, before we get going, just make sure you check out our site, www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. Check us out on iTunes. Uh, leave a little comment, review. You can also email us at immunity at cinematicimmunitycast.com. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks a lot, everybody. 
skulk around. Yes, I'm sure. Those are my best you have a little shots. bit of experience That's of right. skulking around and getting a, the, the great photo, the great in the moment photo. That, you're absolutely right. It's the only way to do it. Isn't it? Isn't the the photos are so much worse when they know it's coming and they want to pose and they want to look right and all the nonsense. Well, either that or they don't want it at all. In this in this industry, actors don't like to be. Most actors don't like stills. The right. irony. Yeah. Why I mean, do they don't want to be found out. You know, you know. Put me in front of the camera. Put me in front of the camera. That's what exactly. do you have a camera? Get it? What are you doing? Well, I mean, the thing is about about acting is that people immerse themselves in in, in somebody else and in a role, and so I found that. Um, it's very difficult. There are very few actors who are really great about stills. It's almost as if, I mean, they're hiding. So they don't, you know, it's kind of like a cultural thing. You know, in various cultures, they think you're stealing their soul. And this is, <laughs> they're actors, a lot of actors think they're being found out. Very People stu- don't superstitious like to talk in theater. About it. You don't think about film actors being yeah. superstitious, really, but they, they really are. I, you know what? I don't think this is so much superstition as much as it is a kind of, uh, Neuroses, you know, it's just it's image protection. It's well, that yes, it is image protection, mm-hmm. and it's it's a kind of discomfort. I mean, there there are some people who are really really bad. It's people you would not expect to have difficulty with this. With stills, you get just that moment, and if you're good at portraits, they're in trouble. I mean, there are ways a lot of the actors don't understand when they're being difficult on set, for instance. You can really screw them by shooting from angles where they're. I mean, I, I don't mean to sound unflattering. Mean. Un- exactly, that's the word I was going to pull out. Is there any point to the idea that it just takes one bad photo to you know ruin somebody's career? Like, then that's the kind of neurosis that they're worried about. No, I don't think it's that. And actually, I'm, I was, I, I wasn't being absolutely clear. The issue is, is much more fundamental. It, I think it has to do with how they see themselves. It's not, you know, it's, it's um, and that's for, ever, for all of us. When you look at a picture, you sometimes say, oh, my God, you know, this is terrible. And, you know, I don't look like this, do I? It's the way, and that happens with voices, too. You know, people are so shocked you know, sometimes when they hear their own voices. In photographs, I mean, there's a lot more vanity involved. When there's vanity, that they want to look a certain. They think of themselves a certain way. Um, I, I get the sense that actors are hiding, for the most part, are hiding so much, they don't even, don't even want to see it for themselves. That they, they. When I do a great shot, I know it's how they see themselves. In other words, when I when someone says to me, "Oh my God, that's fantastic, Jessica," then I know that I got it. In other words, I, because. The real artistry in portraiture, for instance, is, as opposed to just a picture, is getting inside someone, is really seeing inside, is really sort of getting to the essence of that person. I think it's not just that it, they're afraid that a bad picture is going to be out there, a picture that they don't like. It's sort of understanding whether they're okay people or not okay. Do you understand me? Not quite. I, I'll be honest. All right. What do you mean by okay people are okay. not okay people? I have, a, I have a skill. They have to trust you. Of course they have to trust me. I mean, they have to trust me, but I also think that one of the reasons we were talking about getting photographs, on, they were grab shots, so they sort of don't know that I'm, that I'm there. You know, they don't know that I'm shooting. And so that's not a question of trust. That's kind of... Uh, I always want people to look... Well, my, it's, it's not fun for me to have... I'm not out there to make people look terrible. In fact, the real 
artistry in it, again, using that word, maybe overusing it, is to pull out the best. I mean, it's to pull out the most interesting thing about them, to show you something that's particularly interesting, or to show you the way that I think they see themselves. Now, when I'm saying this issue about if people are okay or not okay, when I was growing up, I came from a family that was, it was very difficult. And I used to come home from school frightened every day because I didn't know what was going to hit me. And being, you're looking at me strangely. <laughs> I'm very intently listening to what you're saying, I think. Well, in consequence, I had to look at people. I came home and I would watch people and I'd say, oh, am I okay? Did I do something? Am I not going to, I mean, is this okay? Is it not okay? And so I learned to read people. So when I talk about if someone's okay or not, I can invariably tell if someone's an, an, a decent person, if somebody's a little iffy. Are you understanding? Maybe you you're making yourself very clear now. Okay, and uh, and I love that in lots of ways. I mean, I also find people who are really defensive, self-defensive, or self-defending, and you can't get through them. I mean, this is interesting about photography that a lot of people don't realize. They think, oh, I just take a picture. No. I mean, for me, the interest always is, did I get what I see? And usually I'm pretty quick at it. I'm quick at it again because of the way that I, because I developed part of my brain, <laughs> seriously, that can sort of, I can read. I can read people. Not that I necessarily use that to, to my best advantage. I mean, I, sometimes I know that somebody's not okay and I'm friends with, you know, I mean, I sort of, uh, but in terms of, of photographs, pretty clear, pretty quickly you know, who that person, if somebody's really a nice person, somebody's a little iffy, I, somebody's a little na nasty, I mean, everybody's complicated and people have all sorts of, I'm not, I'm not trying to make this so black and white, but, but there is, for me, that's, that's my truth, that's how I, I mean, I'm I don't want to be using to, that's my truth, but it is my truth. I'm going to pardon that black and white pun that you just yeah, made for just a minute. And I'll, right. and I'll ask you, if you don't mind to share some of the secrets of your mastery, in a practical sense, how do you get what you're talking about? Like you're on a set or on, on a set with whoever it is that you're photographing. How do you go about, once you've identified what that person is like and how they're going to react and what, who that person is, how do you get that moment, that effect that you mentioned earlier? How do you get the essence of who that person is, as you as you described? How do you go about doing that? Okay, uh, that's a very good question. But I have to break it down into in terms of photography into an area that is show business, which is you know the entertainment industry, which is what you what you really want me to talk about, and and my other photography because I have I have a whole other career that has nothing to do with, well maybe it does in some in some sort of kind of. Uh, same instrument, but a Same different audience. Audience. Editing Maybe. process. Uh, editing process, too. precisely. So, for instance, on set, I mean, I got to the point, honestly, I mean, well, obviously, don't want me to be dishonest, but I find it almost unbearable on sets with actors. I mean, you're, you probably don't want to hear this, but I mean, for still photographers, I, for instance, will not shoot on a feature. Just won't. I wouldn't be standing around being the person who's kicked around. I mean, the other thing is, photographer is not the major, is not the, is not part of the filmmaking process, is still a photographer. So the first person, anytime there's a problem with an actor, you're in my eye line, you know, off. They kick the still photographer off. What I eventually did, 
was I didn't like to do publicity, but with law with Law and Order, which I worked on for years, I got to know everyone well enough, and they really trusted me. I mean, that was, a, and in fact, every time a new actor came in and wouldn't wouldn't work with me, the other actors would just stop. And the other actors would say, "Listen, you know, you got to do it. That's it. You're not messing us up because." This is Jessica, and we're going to do this. This is our deal. Um, I can't tell you how much they backed me up. In mm. that case, you know, those people, like Jerry Orbach and Sam Waterston, Patha, they were great. But um, I'm gonna, I don't have to name names, but people came in and you know, were, were being difficult, and they learned pretty quickly. that, And that's a great thing to have. If that happens, though, over a period of time. That's a level of trust that you develop because they know your work, you know. But if people come in, and then I, so I, I stopped at a certain point because I had so much other work doing p regular publicity and I would only do art department because then the actors were at my mercy. I wasn't at their mercy, you know, it wasn't that. And I would even get, on Criminal Intent, I had such a great deal, I would never get it again. I mean, it was, I had my own crew. I had my own lighting. <laughs> Lighting guy, I had my own. I had hair, makeup, wardrobe. I had everything. I had my own crew, and my way of dealing with the actors who came in. A lot of times, even if it was just for an ID photograph, that was and that that came from the producers. That was an extraordinary gift to me. But I do things like I play games with people. I make it fun. My way of shooting to get people relaxed is to make it. It's really to make it fun. See, my thing is, I can't stand not getting the shot. So if I can't get the shot, and somebody's blocking me, somebody just doesn't want to be photographed, I get very, I get really upset about it. I mean, I get seriously upset. Passionate. You know, I mean, I just don't, I don't see the point in being there. I had an incident recently where I had to quit on a pilot because the actress refused to let me shoot her during takes. And she said, but there were no rehearsals. Because this director wanted to go straight to, you know, straight to camera. So I was taking shots. I was trying to steal shots from various things, and then she saw some of them, and, and then she actually took my photograph. She wanted me to email those photographs to her. This is what I'm talking about with actors. And I said, I, for various reasons, I couldn't. I said somebody else's company owns it, and and then so she said, I know what I'll do. I'll take them from my cell phone. So she takes shots of my shots of her, but still won't let me shoot her when I, I mean, for my work. And I don't know what the point of that was, except I'm so still so irritated. But the funny Has part is... Has it more irritating that the technology now allows them to see what you just shot immediately? Back no, in the day, it used to that, be a week later, but yeah, now you no, can no, see no. instantaneously? Actually, I think that that's useful in some ways. The whole idea of It's useful for you, it. but is it a hindrance that now the actress can run over and go, let me see all those pictures you just shot? It's, it's a problem. It can be a problem. But it also can be an advantage if you're doing something... If you, if you, if at least you think it is in this situation with this actress, I thought it would be a big advantage, and so did the director. So he had her look at those photos, but she still was impossible afterwards. In other words, she just took my pictures, shot them for his, on her cell phone, and then kept being impossible. But the joke is, then somebody comes on for the next three weeks, the photographer. When it comes to the upfronts, guess whose photograph they use? Mine. Yeah. <laughs> Like somebody else has been shooting for all those weeks, and it was just a photograph that I, which I didn't think was particularly great, but they—that's the one that they chose as their major photo for that. Do you find that it's generally easy to curtail that kind of activity of some of an actor or actress wanting to 
see your work by just saying that you know we're not allowed to you know it's uh, generally not how we work we don't want to you know how do you handle that situation because that's seemingly a common thing am i right it's fairly common but not i mean if you show them a couple usually when you show them they sort of get the idea and then most most of them are worried about their lines they're not going to come up to you all the time that's not again the issue for me is the frustration i can't tolerate the fact that somebody does not let me do my job and i've said it to, i've said it to actors i'll say things like my by the way am i sounding really mean no when i've had discussions where i'll say look you consider yourself an artist. Why don't you respect, you should respect everybody else who's working here because everyone here thinks of himself or herself as an artist. And the other thing I'll say is, I'm not doing this for just for me. I'm doing it for you. Why would you not want to give me the best that you could? Why are you, you know, putting, putting yourself in a situation where it may not be the best or putting me in a situation? I don't, I'm not necessarily that kind about the way I say it. No, I'm, I'm pretty good. It's just that it's that whole caste system and the still photographer is the lowest on the totem pole. Well, let's talk about that for a second. It didn't even occur to me while we were putting these questions together. You're officially always a part of the camera department. Yes. Uh, in terms of budgeting, and you're on the camera truck and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But you're, you're treated a little differently than, say, the ACs and the operator, the DP. You're... You're a part of the team, but you're, you're your on the peripheral that's, somewhat. You're, you're actually, that's true. You're really on your own, bottom line. You're your own department. I mean, the reality is, yes, we're under the camera. We're considered, I mean, technically to be part of the camera department, but... Um, you never really work with the ACs. You never work with the, you know, like no, maybe the, the DP might say to you, hey, get some shots of that kind of a thing. True, and, you, and, 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 and oddly... I mean, you really have to depend. You depend on the camera operators and the DP to help you. Look, on these sets, you've got to get your spot. You know, 99% of it is just getting in. You know, it's just really 90 And you've got a crew of 60 guys, uh, you know, guys and gals doing their own thing, you and you've got to elbow your way in. But, but the other things, you have to be incredibly charming. You have to charm your way through these things. And it's very, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's tough. In other words, you take... There's a level of energy involved. By the time you get to take your stills, <laughs> you've already used up a lot of that just by wending your way through to get to the to get to the right spot. Is that spot generally underneath the main camera position? Well, in some cases, they want you to shoot. That's those are the angles they want you to shoot from, and they want you to shoot as much as as you can of the scene. So they want they, they want that replication. But for me, the other. I also managed to kind of do it my way. In, in, some, in other words, I worked it out that I could, for the most part, do it my way. And I got a little spoiled, and so in consequence, when it comes to anything where I can't do it, in other words, and doing it my way just means I just want to get the best work. I, wanna, I have a client, and I have to shoot something, and I want to give them the best work. And I don't want work of mine that's really sloppy out there. I don't want it out there. Just in terms of chain of command, if you have a problem on set, do you usually go right to the UPM? Do you go directly to a producer, the DP? Who's your, where's I your I go chain? to the person I think I'm going to, uh, it, it varies. We'll solve the problem. Exactly. I mean. If it's with an actor, do you, I mean, you're going to go to a director to? Well, Frank, I have to tell you one thing with Law & Order. I just called Dick Wolf. I mean, I was in a position. Well, that was to an do extra that. ability you might have had. That because, and he stopped it in two seconds. I mean, he. So you can go right to the EP in this because case. You, because a lot of times you go to the producers and they don't want to be bothered. They'll say this. Even on that on that TV show, that pilot I did recently, 
they, this producer came up to me and said, we don't care about stills. And I'm thinking... Then why did you that, hire me to be here? So then he, and then he, then he said to me, and so we're, and we're not paying you to be seen. So I said, yeah, I said, I said first of all, you're not paying me. He said, who's paying me? I told him it was another company. It wasn't the production company. And I said, second of all, why do you want a still photographer? I mean, why then have... And, you, and they do want... They want you to disappear. Now, if they let you do your work, you could disappear more easily. You know, in other words, you could... You know, just they want you like a sniper with a 600 exactly millimeter right. lens from you across the street or something. It. But with I mean, 80 people standing around the camera, it's hard to get a clear line of sight how about for that shots? sniper. You're doing things and you ask people for stuff. I mean, I have been through. There were only three times in my life when I've quit, and they've been on, and they've been in, in, in situations with, in the entertainment industry, where I just wasn't gonna, I just wasn't gonna deal. With, I mean, I just wasn't gonna do it. We were gonna talk later about your association with Wolf Films, we might as well get there. You were their official photographer, so you did all four of those Law & Order series, Law & Order, Criminal Intent, Special Victims Unit, and uh, Trial by Jury, that didn't last very long. Um, well, Trial by Jury, for instance, I pulled out of the publicity because one of the actors was impossible. She didn't want her photograph. She didn't want her photo taken. I said, I'm, I, I said I'll do art department, and I'm not coming back for her. Or I'll, do, I'll go in and I'll shoot scenes where, now this sounds very spoiled, but the reality is, I've worked really hard, and I, I give people a lot of respect. Let me turn this off. I, I respect people, other people's work. I expect the same kind of respect. I understand that, you know, that, that it's more important for them to have the actor. You know, the actor has to be there on, on set. But it doesn't mean that they have to, at the same time, to torture. I'm really shocked now at the people coming in. I mean, you get, you're getting a lot more people coming in in uh, still photographers, that you're getting a lot of a, a lot more people. You're getting them out of seven, you know, out of out of Ivy League schools. When I came in, that wasn't the case. I mean, they didn't they didn't let me in anyway. But it was we're going to talk about that in a second. Okay. But um, and I always said to him, I said, "What are you doing here? I mean, is this young photographer just out of Vassar?" And I said, "Why do you why do you want to do that? I mean, you're going to be on a set." And they said, "I just love it. They don't mind being kicked around. I don't. They don't mind it." And I think there's also, there are people who get sort of an adrenaline rush. I don't get that. I mean, I don't get that in any possible way. I don't get the adrenaline rush, and I don't get it, that somebody wants to, is okay about sort of having to, you know, having to be sort of diminished. And there is something about that. Because, you know, these sets also have a family atmosphere. And so everybody's got a role. I mean, it really is a caste system in every possible way. It's cast, C-A-S-T, and cast, C-A-S-T-E. Absolutely. Maybe we can chat about that real quick. Um, as a still photographer in general, who hires and fires that person? Excluding your law and order experience, which I think was a little well, different be, than normal. Well, I mean, it, it can come, it's a variety of things. It can come from publicity departments in the studio. It can come from a director who wants somebody who's, you know, they know. Um, it can come from a, produ a producer. I mean, it, there is no networks. That's the networks. That's you know the photo managers you know who are uh, who hire. So not typically from the camera department, which is how I had no, always thought it was. That's so it's new no. information. No, I mean there are people. I mean the, the fact is that there are so many DPs that I mean maybe some photographers are tied to DPs, but it's not the way that the DPs are tied to their camera operators. You know they'll tell you how much they love you and they you know how great your work is, and then the next thing comes up and you're not around anymore. You know they're not fighting for you or doing no. It doesn't come. We don't. Ha that's not the way this works. And 
And the other part of that would be how do you make yourself invisible once you're you're on the set and you're trying to get those shots and you're trying to be as professional as you can? How do you go about being seen, not heard, or, or however you want to put that? Like, how do you, you be a little find cat? You know, how do you, you find really, that spot? I mean, I because Wolf uh, Wolf Films, by the, by the way, did a lot of other stuff. We did uh, New York Undercover, but we also we did. So I remember that they had names for me on these sets only because I was, but only because I was skilled at sort of, of you know, sort of worming my way through. How do you do it? You, very carefully is the answer. Okay. I mean, you have to just sort of look around and see, you know, see what you can do. When I said that I'm probably the wrong still photographer, I mean, to talk to, I meant that I, for instance, don't have the temperament of a, of a unit still photographer, unit stills photographer, in the sense I was that ask I this, like I've my seen own it lighting. Both ways is it stills photographer or still photographer officially? Because I've seen it officially in both ways. In in Europe, it's always been stills, and okay. in, in the states, it was still, and now it's becoming more and more stills. Okay. So there is no no definitive. Term. I think the union still calls it still. Yeah, but occasionally you'll see the union, and then sometimes they'll write stills. So. How about the fact that there's no apostrophe in the International Cinematographer's Guild title? That, too, where there should be one. <laughs> Why I'm didn't you I'm fix that? You were on the I, board I forever. I actually had people, I was doing, I was, I was, when I was repping the still photographers, and I created these, these shows, and all these, and the and people we hired to do the invitations were all writing Inter International Cinematographer's Guild with an apostrophe, and I'd have to correct it each time I would correct it, and it would drive them crazy, because they'd say, that's not right. We're, we're a bunch of right brain people, not necessarily using yeah. the left side as much. <laughs> Since we're here, I, I know that you did the hard way, which we've talked to multiple people this week who worked on the hard way, including uh, uh, Doug and uh, Tom Weston. Um, that was just a fluke for me because I wasn't really working in entertainment. Then. I just knew Rob. I think it was Rob White. I can't Colin. remember. Rob Colm. And I knew Jimmy Woods pretty well because I'd worked on something in, in NBC with him. So... I didn't have, you know, sort of, I didn't have any particularly bad, I worked at night, and I was sort of weirded out because I hadn't been on any set in, in some time, so I don't have any good hard way stories for you. And, you, well, you said earlier you didn't like features, so I was going to ask, why did you do so many, so because few features, no, no, and the it, answer might be, uh, you didn't like them. Well, that was also, if I did things, and there was other things I did that I never got credit for, I mean, because I, I, I only came in for like five days at a time. But I, the, the notion of seeing the same people over and over and over and being in that situation, you know, being kicked around over and over and over, just not for me. The other thing is, truthfully, because of what occurred with this union initially, I had to develop a whole other, you know, I didn't, I didn't come in with some, it's not some linear thing. I had, to, I had to go, because of the lawsuit, I had to go figure out how to, how to be a photographer. Speaking of linear, we're going to try and go back chronologically now. But I thought... Um, that your your family was uh, impressive, but it turns out your family is amazing. Um, your notes are very helpful. It's very kind of you to say. Your well, your mother was the first female Supreme Court justice on Long Island. Um, one of very few women judges at the time. She established the first jail school and the first halfway house. Uh, she ended solitary confinement for children in here in the Empire State. State. Yeah, it's a big deal. Your sister was one of the first females elected uh, to the Senate. There were three she was of them. judge. First three together. Ran for attorney general. Another sister was one of the first female editors of People magazine. 
Another sister was a reporter for Newsweek, one of the first, first females. She was in. the first female. The fe- first female. I guess my question is, why are the men in your family such underachievers? The men? The men <laughs> in my family are very, actually very successful. <laughs> success. Listen, the question is, why are my brothers so mean to me? No, they're not. <laughs> no, my brothers actually are very successful. Do you know about my brothers? No. They've done important things too. Well, I have two brothers. One this is, is sort of, of funny. No, this is one is funny because, but he's he's a genius. He created this character. You may know. You're both probably too young, but you've he created a character called Slim Goodbody. And Slim Goodbody has the inside of the bunny on the outside, and he teaches health to. Ki- <clears throat> I know it sounds clownish, but it's not. He teaches health to kids, and he had a segment on Captain Kangaroo, which threw him into the the Pratt sponsored it five-minute segment, mm-hmm. and then he was the, the most popular show on PBS for kids. His music's played by every major symphony orchestra in the country, and then he's developed other things like MathWorks for, for Nickelodeon and a whole batch of things. He's also a great businessman. He's an artist and who's a great businessman, which, you know, beats me. You Your know. parents have a lot to brag about. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I know, not exactly. And we haven't gotten to your stuff well, yet. There's also, and I have another brother who's uh, Judd, who's a well-known, he's a well-known lawyer in New York. He's, he's the guy who got Lennox Lewis back in the ring. You know what I mean? I don't, he was, hmm. he, I don't know, that probably means nothing to you, but, he, but my brother can make a case for anything. He's, uh, you know, he did a lot of stuff. First he worked in solely in criminal law, and then he moved to another branch of criminal law, boxing. He represents Gene <laughs> Mosley. <laughs> to Don King and whatever. But right. Long story. But Thanksgiving must be a nightmare. I mean, oh, well, first oh, of all, my parents, my parents are, my, the other thing I have to mention is my father. It was incredible. My parents are no longer with us. My father um, was an extraordinary, my father was a genius. I mean, I'm not just straight out. And uh, originally was in publishing and then he published the first paperback book ever. And uh, then... Oh, just that? <laughs> he wasn't also an astronaut and president or something? No, but he was a kid. He'd been very, you know, he was a kid of the Depression. He'd been desperately poor. He eventually, when he started having kids, he realized he needed to make money. He was very interested. He had led labor strikes as a, you know, the 30s. And he was young, and he was very interested in, in labor. But there were no positions. I mean, he couldn't, there was nobody to be a lawyer for at the time. I mean, there was no sort of area. I feel like in the 30s there wasn't a lot of work to justify having the, the, the labor positions available. Well, this, yeah, and this is actually, most. that's true. I mean, in most of his work, I think, there were positions. I mean, there were people who were, but this is more, I think this is probably more early 40s. But by then, even, there was still, so he, he became a management lawyer, but he dealt in a lot of labor relations to the point where, um, he was the only guy that Jimmy Hoffa would negotiate with. My father represented pretty much anything that moved in or out of this country, including a lot of the trucking industry. Hoffa, um, Hoffa felt my father, my father's instincts were, were so good about, and he was honorable and so good about labor that um, he trusted him. I mean, his, my father had offices all over the place. I mean, he did business everywhere. And he also made it possible for all of us to do what we wanted. And he, made it, and he made it possible. I, he wasn't coming home at 7 o'clock at night. My mother was very, my, my father was worked seven days a week. You know, he was traveling all the time. It wasn't, um, we'd see him on weekends only, some, sometimes like one or two, possibly two weekend nights. I saw more than others. I was, I was a big daddy's girl. He took me all over the world with him. 
Are you the, you're the youngest? Of the of women. All the, of all the, just the women, okay. So you had politician, you had uh, labor. Oh, and my, my father encouraged me, knew that my mother was very ambitious, and he encouraged her to, to, um, to run for office. My mother ran for office, and, and women lost, I mean, there were no women out there. She lost so often. We were dragged around from the time I was six to all these political functions and things, you know, and she'd have to pretend that she cooked. She never, you know, in other words, they'd show her Beatrice bursting in the kitchen. We'd all be laughing. <laughs> in the kitchen. Where's that? <laughs> you had all these role models growing up. Why photography? Of all the all the different paths you could have taken, clearly, why did why would why did photography become your thing? Well, I, first of all, I, I just want to preface this by saying that I, my theory is that a lot of if you if you if you have basically have an artistic instinct, I mean, if you have that gene which comes from my, my maternal side. My, my grandfather was a brilliant clothing designer. Brilliant. I mean, he was brilliant. And I was prefacing by saying that I think that, that skills are transferable. That you have, I mean, there are things, I was always an artistic kid. I mean, I was always a kid that I liked to draw, and I liked to, uh, and I was a great dancer, and I really wanted to be a figure skater. And I, <laughs> and I was found, when I was five, I was found by Dick Button, skating in New, New Hyde Park, and he told my mother, look, She's great, and she loves to skate. And so he said, let me teach her. And he was a three-time world figure skating champion. Bottom line was my mother decided it was too much trouble to get me to, to New Hyde Park. From, that was about 25 minutes from my home. So they cut it out. She, she cut out the lessons, which it took me years to recover. I'm not kidding. I was that upset about it. So how did I become a photographer? I was a kid with a bad eye. You're going to hear this about a lot of people in the industry. And a lot of people were, became photographers. Um, I had a, an eye, a wandering eye, sat out, and when I was eight, I had an operation, and uh, I had to go three days a week after, uh, after school to this stereoscopic uh, examination, this, this, this therapy, and they would put the stereoscope together, and they'd say, where's the third rabbit? So if you don't use both your eyes, people don't understand this. You don't see depth. So, well, you don't see depth at least close when you're sitting close to somebody or near somebody. And it went on for weeks, and I was getting so upset because I wanted to go home and play. That finally I, would, I came in and said, okay, I see the third rabbit. They'd say, what color? White, pink. And I, did, I kept trying this, and I kept saying, no, you don't see the third rabbit. I, I made it up. I just wanted out of there. But one day I did sit down in there, and there was the third rabbit. And it was the most amazing moment. It was blue. They picked blue because they figured a kid wouldn't, an eight-year-old wouldn't. But more amazing to me was that there was this object I'd never seen before. And I thought, oh my God, what else have I missed? And I had it in my head that I must have missed so many things that I, so that my, they gave me a camera for therapy, therapeutic purposes. And when the first time that I could really get a major camera, I asked my father to get me the widest angle so that I could. See <laughs> I everything. I could see everything. And then I, so I started shooting and I, I uh, just, I built a darkroom when I was a kid. At 11, I had a darkroom. I wasn't really thinking that I was going to do it professionally because my parents wanted me to go to law school and I didn't, you know, or they just wasn't sort of in that, in their vocabulary. And my father eventually was incredibly supportive of me. You know, um, you know what? I think how I became a photographer was like either blind luck, good or bad, is how I became a photographer. I think mean, it, it was just... It, it just kind of happened, and then 
pretty much, you know, not too long after getting out of school, I got a job, and, that, and not just any job. I got a job at NBC, I mean, a real, a real photography job. So that kind of. Do me a favor and tilt that a little oh, bit. Oh, I wasn't even sure that I wanted it, but I knew that that was proof to my parents that, it, that this was a, you know, at least were my mother that it was a real thing. How supportive I, were they? Actually, my father was incredibly supportive. I mean, one, I remember coming from the darkroom one. In the beginning, he, you know, wasn't paying attention. But I remember he came home one night and I had done some photographs, and I had, um, I, I, uh, I came home and I had, I had been in the darkroom and I had done and I had been toning and toning and toning. It's a slum, these selenium tone, tone prints. And he said to me, he, he said to me, <laughs> it's terrible. But I came, to, came downstairs and he was very late and he was in the kitchen because he'd come home very late. That's why we didn't see him. You know, like one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. Uh, which is not that late to me anymore, but he looked at the prince and he said, no wonder you're so crazy. You're brilliant. <laughs> 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 and then he said to me, how much are you charging for this? And I, was, I said, I don't know, you know, like maybe $50. And he said, no, you're not. He said, you give it for free because if somebody can't afford the value, you, know, you have to learn how to value your work. You, can't, you cannot do that. You give it for nothing or get paid properly. Although we weren't allowed to talk about money, and my the daughter, the girls weren't, the women weren't, so we really didn't learn how to the business. We sort of had to had to make money. Well, my brother's got a completely different message. I'm getting off the topic here, no, but that, no, not at all. Was, I, I was, was just right about to point. ask. The, the, you would later apprentice with a bunch of photographers. What was the most important lessons that you would learn? Was it technical stuff about the cameras? Was it the business of photography? Well, the, mo well, the most important monetizing it is what you were just talking about. No, I, you know, you know something. I was so oblivious to all of that because I also the other thing is that I, while my father was really supportive, he did some things that, I mean, I think, and he would say something like that to me at the same time, he would do things like call me at NBC and say, listen, I'm going to Hong Kong, you wanna come with me? And I'd say, hey, dad, I got a job. He'd say, oh, don't worry about that. You know, you can come with me, you know. You don't really need that, you're much better than that. You don't need a job. You can still do your work. In other words, he was very, and he was very supportive of me, I mean, also financially. For a period, I would decide I wanted to do these short films. He would fund them. So, and I just thought that was going on forever. You're looking at me strangely. I, I can't but believe I can't. You, got, you girls weren't, I, I assumed your story was gonna be, not only were we encouraged to, to succeed, it was demanded that we would succeed, but you're kind of saying that was sort of a laissez-faire, no, 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 it wasn't, no, 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 it wasn't, it, it wasn't all so broke molds of some kind. It so. wasn't, so it wasn't, it's, maybe I'm not, I'm not, adequately describing it because at the same time that my father did that, that was a control thing too. My father wanted me, my father would say to me, we'd have these fights, I used to be afraid to show my pictures and he'd say, it's not art if it stays in the drawer, you have to get the work out there. I mean, he wanted me, he wanted people to see my work but he didn't want me to leave him, all right? Mm. So this was, this was, these are complicated family things and with someone that powerful and that appealing, I mean, my father was, I was such a daddy's girl that it was really, that my siblings hated me. <laughs> but, that's no, a, but we've since grown past that. Oh, really? You oh, maybe so? not. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I was trying to give I it that. It never the, goes the away. All right. But you can, I mean, no. I would think they the don't. sense of competition would be quite high in your family. I think what people really competed for was love. I mean, in the end, it's that we had parents who were really not there. I mean, they were there in, in a very, in, 
you know, in a, in a very strong sense in, in terms of sort of their, their, their essence. But other people took care of us. And we, and there were six. So whoever, you had to be the best in order to be, first of all, it was scary if you didn't, there were other, don't think this was laissez-faire at all. You got a bad report card, you were in serious trouble. I mean, it was stuff like that. He, there, there was emphasis on, on learning and on, and there were tests. We'd be sitting, we used to have our, the dinner table on the weekends and my father came home. Really frightening. Because if you didn't know something, you'd have to run upstairs, look it up, come back. And, now, there was a lot. It, it was very complicated because we were given so many things that, that were wonderful. But the demands were huge, huge. It was very crazy. Hmm. Just believe me. I mean, but people talk about first world problems now. The bottom line is that when people, I mean, parents need to, I mean, love should be unconditional. It shouldn't be involved. You know, I don't, I'm not going to get into a whole thing here, but that's, in answer to your question, it's much more complicated than just plain competing against, you know, this, this sense of being competitive in terms of the world. I think it was absolutely had to do with, with getting, uh, being loved. So as you started to grow into this passion and started to follow through with it, you know, what did you see yourself doing down the line? Like, obviously, you were thinking about the future in some way. What did you want to do? Do you want to hear the craziest thing? I didn't think about the future, which is really, really, I mean, kind of a problem. I mean, I think that something that I would say to, to anybody who's out there now, even young people coming in, young people, first of all, artists, Go to business, take business classes. That's one thing. I mean, understand business. But also, I mean, you've got to set very specific goals. My thing was, I was, but I was given mixed signals because I was given a, given a signal that you have to be the best. You know, my father would say, you have to have your own thing. You can't just be some appendage to some, some guy. You know, you have to, you, and my daughters all are special and you all have to do that. But on the other hand, don't go too far out there. I mean, that's why you're also talking. When you're talking to a strange, to to a, a person who grew up under under very strange circumstances. I mean, I suppose everybody thinks unique they at least. Unique. Um, so it's just very odd that I just ha somehow thought that the future would take care of itself. <laughs> and in some ways, um, things did sort of roll along, you know. Um, but I did not want to, and while there, there's co with competition, when you have that many people, there are limits to how much you can, how, how much you s can succeed. In other words, every, every child in that family had a, you know, was sort of labeled in some way. I mean, really, this shouldn't be a show about, sitting the, you know, about the film industry. It should be a show just <laughs> psychology. Although I'll say something about the film industry Please. that's very tied to this. And this is something when I, I taught it, at the workshops, and um, people were saying that so many people who come into this industry come from families that really were had had, had difficulties because they would find new family. You know, the, the, you work with people with this kind of intensity, especially in, in television, because you're working pretty much all year long. You get a couple months off, but otherwise you're working around the clock. People see their co-workers more than they see their families, their actual families. 100% true. And I, I, so I think that, you know, the, the idea of sort of dysfunctional families and stuff, you see it, maybe you see it in every industry, but it just seems to be much clearer in this. Do you, I mean, this it, one. that speaks to the passion that, you know, people with 
if they're involved in a business like this, they've somehow found a way to turn that into something in whatever position. You know, if you're going to be on a set for 14 hours a day, well, there's a passion behind it. And, you know, if you come from a life of difficulty, um, that could drive a lot of that, in, in my opinion. I think you're right. And I'm going to tell you one little interesting story that happened with Law & Order. Every, you know, Law & Order was a big family, and it was very tough when people came in there. You know, if somebody came in, they had to like, make their way. I mean, it was never mind trying to find a spot to shoot from. Somebody, some new person was hired. It, it was so interior. And so at a certain point, I was doing the Law & Order crime scene book. And when the book happened... I was having so much trouble with everybody on set. People were trying to, I mean, there was sabotage going on. They were calling, I mean, there's people were doing things, and I said, what is this? And then I realized you weren't allowed to go outside the parameters of, of what, they weren't comfortable, that your family, this was a family, and you were not supposed to jump the line, you know, your job was such and such, and you weren't supposed to do, it was, it was very strange. I didn't have a lot of support on that. I had a lot of problems when, with that when that book was coming, when that book was being published. I mean, just people's, people's um, competitive nature came out. I mean, just as it would in any family. I mean, so happy for you when, in fact, they're not. We, we, I think we experience that in a lot of different ways. I mean, it, again, going back to the passion, people are very passionate, and sometimes, you know, that passion is self-driven and self-motivated. And so, right. I mean, I'd like to think that I've got a grasp on it these days, um, and that when I am exposed to it by someone else, that I can try, you know, or not have to try as hard to dismiss it and just, just move along. You're absolutely right. I'm just, I'm just noting it. I mean, it's not, and obviously I'm, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's know. harder when it's your family, though, uh, you know. Um, but again, you know, a lot of things to talk about here. We don't have to. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. You're that. just catching me at a weird point in my life and I think that's why I'm thinking I'm talking to you more about this than I would about things you want to hear okay so one of the first hurdles um, you would smash were being um, the first female staff photographer at any network that's right I had thought it was just NBC but no. you corrected me what were some of the initial problems with that well the initial problems were that people didn't take me seriously I mean they just assumed I came in as you know that in those days first so many problems but the but the basic one was that I was not taken seriously because I thought, you know, how did she get this job? She couldn't have gotten it. I mean, women were, you know, remember this is this the mid-70s and it's still, the, the, the feminist movement is, is, is moving along, but it's, there aren't that many women there. Uh, the biggest problem for me on the, on, on the whole initially was harassment. I mean, harassment was all the way through. I mean, it was incredible, incredible sexual harassment and there was no way around it. No As a recourse. young woman, no recourse. And so that was, those were the days when I have to make everybody happy and I still have to get my job done. That was, you know, really, that, looking back, I, I, I don't know how I did it, honestly. And that's why, for instance, every woman believed Anita Hill, while men didn't understand what she was talking about, you know, the, the whole Clarence Thomas thing. Because women who were working during that period all understood. You had to just take it. I mean, you had to do it or you weren't going to have your job. You weren't going to, so. And also, we had no... No role models to really, I mean, my mother had been the role model as a woman, but different. She was a judge, but we had no way of figuring it out. We had no laws, so the biggest thing was probably that. If I, I mean, and that also affected, it affected assignments. It, I mean, that whole Frank Sinatra business was, in, was lunacy, and they did it to me with President Carter, and they did, you know, they wouldn't let me. Let's talk a little bit about that lawsuit. This was about 
being able to cover Frank Sinatra and his wife had ordered that beautiful girls be kept away and the NBC producer identified you as one of those people that couldn't be near him? Or? No, no, it's not, not exactly how it came to First of all, I was very visible. I, you know, when I was NBC, I was very young and I was very beautiful. And I would come in and that was, I think that was one of the reasons they hired me. Because let me tell you the other stuff they did. I would have to <laughs> get dressed up for events at night and shoot. People would, and the guys would wear jeans and I'd be in an evening gown. It was idiotic. I'd be like rolling around on the floor and eat in evening gowns and shoot. They, they wouldn't give me any sports to shoot, and finally they gave me hockey, but wouldn't give me a motor drive because they t <laughs> I'm shooting ice hockey with no... And you know, that was before digital, so this was... So this is click, wind, click, you got wind, it. You got click. it, click, wind. This is a... What, what happened was I was, I was fairly high-profile on NBC. Also. I mean, because I was, so, I was so visible, because I was young, because I was beautiful, because I had these... They took me out all... I mean, in other words, they would have me on assignments that didn't exist. They'd say, just shoot the suit the ground. Th I know this sounds very strange, but in those days, those were, th and they'd say, and I'd come in and it would be the, the head of Gillette, and they'd say, who's this? And they'd say, oh, that's Jessica, that's our photographer. I mean, I don't know what that was about, but I can tell you that I used to go to dinner with the president and dinner with everyone, they would, and I remember when I organized a union fund, they said, you know, you betrayed us, and I'd say, who's us? Who are we? You know, do you, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I, um, the Frank Sinatra thing came up, because every time they couldn't get someone to, they knew someone didn't like to be photographed. Like Willie Mays, that was the first one. Willie Mays wouldn't let anybody photograph him. So I would come in every day and I'd get, go to the assignment box and I looked and I'd see the, and they'd stand there, the, the male photographers, and they'd laugh. You know, they'd see, I'd look at the assignment, but I didn't know, you know, and I just, they'd be laughing. But I'd go and get them, you know, I mean, I got them, obviously. I mean, and then there would be bigger stories. I had a lot of, Interesting experience. There were times when it would work to your advantage, being a woman, I would think. Yeah, but even with Willie Mays, he kept making me come back, and it was a joke. With them. He was coaching the, the, the Mets, and he'd come back, and they'd say, Willie's got a girlfriend. I mean, in other words, I'd have to... Yeah, it worked. Look, it was a double-edged sword. Every time there was a, a success, there would be more harassment as a result. There was more harassment. There was all this stuff that was going... I mean, there was... This was... A, it was very difficult, because you, it was a juggling act all the way through. Bottom line is, I was... I was Frank Sinatra, as you know, is notorious for not liking, liking to be photographed. So when this documentary was being done, they said, okay, we're going to send Jessica because he's going to like Jessica, and that's it. And so, and he was alone in this house in New Jersey because this was going to be out in whatever that, that uh, venue is in New Jersey. They used to be there, I think it's, I don't know. He was, he was performing a concert, and the day of it, they called me in and they said, oh, Barbara Marks said you can't come because she hears you're beautiful and she either has to be an ugly woman or a, or a man. And they said, that's such a compliment. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm going. And they said, no, you're not. We already said Fred, send Fred Hermansky's on his way. We sent a car with Fred, who's another. I went ballistic. I mean, this is like. So, by the way, the whole thing about suing them was not. It wasn't over Sinatra. It was over the union stuff. The, the Sinatra stuff got... Everybody in, at, at NBC knew about Sinatra. But NBC was a pretty small... I mean, it, was, it wasn't the way it is. It wasn't as corporate. It was, it was somewhat corporate, but not... And about so it ended up in the papers, and they don't like that kind of publicity, and then they... So that's what happened. About what year is this? That it was 77. Uh, I'm just... Um, I'm thinking you, you mentioned NBC, and I'm thinking back to, like, the movie network, you know, where things are, uh, where the networks are way different than what they are now. GE was already in there. 
And when I first came in, it was RCA. That was a privately owned company. It was different. You know, it was just the, that was that was great. And the minute GE came in, sorry GE, but the fact is, any you know, corporations come in, it becomes the bottom line. It's not a. It's very rare to have a situation that I have these that I had. Everybody, people worked at NBC, preferred it when it was more of a, it was a much, it was just different, it was a different atmosphere. I just had completely different experience because anytime you're the first at anything, that's, you know, you're just sort of feeling your way through and they, nobody has has uh, answers for it. I mean, you just have to do it yourself. There's no road to follow. That's or, exactly yeah. right. So tell us about organizing at, at NBC with the, the, the union involvement. It was NABIT. That was the television union union at the time. Am I speaking properly? Yeah. Was uh, NABIT? NABIT is the uh, National Association of Broad, Broadcast. I don't. It, it's gone now. Isn't NABIT gone now? Yeah, it's it, dissolved it, now. It dissolved we get in trouble for acronyms, though, so we keep trying to explain what acronyms are to people. Okay, well, can you fill that in? NABIT is the what is it? Look it up. We'll, fi we'll figure it out. All right, and uh, everybody would come to me. The darkroom guys would come. Everybody was very talented in there, but I was the only one who was sort of educated, and they saw me in a different way. The darkroom uh, guys were working crazy hours, uh, no overtime and no nothing. People came to me and said, look, this is uh, not good. Um, so I would go to complain on their behalf, and then they'd all disappear because you know, people were frightened. <laughs> it was like, what are you complaining about, Jessica? They don't say anything. But anyway, bottom line is I said, okay. I think that this needs to be we need to be unionized and boy did that get me into trouble. That was that was the bottom line on the Frank Sinatra thing. All of this was going on around the same time. The the NBC I thought NBC was eating out of my hands, they were eating my hand. Right. <laughs> I didn't know that because I was young, I didn't understand consequences. I just thought I'd do the right thing and have a then the what happened was the union I don't know if you want to get into all this stuff. We we I was organizing everything was going along fine. We were getting ready to, to uh to join when the union rep suddenly said, well, you know, as soon as you people come in, we're going to call a strike. And this was around the time, so 76, that was that was 76 because of the convention. I'm going to block the convention. I said, based on what? He said, we'll figure it out, but we want more. Th so I remember thinking, this guy's a moron. I'm sorry, but he's dead now, so don't speak ill of it. The guy, I'm not naming names. And NBC saw it as an opportunity to come back to me and say, listen, we'll give you everything that they would give you and more. Of course, I believed them. They did do it. I mean, they gave the highest salaries to anyone. They, st they gave, started giving overtime. They started giving compensatory time. I did a good thing in there. I mean, I, I did, but uh, they waited their, you know, they waited like a year and a half and then came after me, you know, like ostensibly. How did they come after you at that point? They laid me off, but and they didn't, they didn't succeed. Well, well, they laid me, but no, that was, that's different. Oh, it was okay. like that was from the that was IATSE. All right, sorry, we'll get to that. Uh, no, they laid me off, but then they had to. Then they were threatened with a lawsuit because there had been so much. There was a whole because it was about a whole other, you know, a whole group of other things. They had to rehire me, so I went back. But then I, you know, it was just to prove a point, and then I quit. So that's when what happened was when I was organizing at NBC, the IA came to me. It was six forty-four then. And they said, look, you've got a constituency here, so this is what we'll do. We'll, we want to come in. I said, nobody, you're too expensive. They don't want to, nobody's going to do this. And plus, you want to give television film status. It doesn't exist. They wouldn't, didn't want to give them feature film. Let the still photographers who came into the IA. Anyway, they said, they asked me to, they wanted the, the unit to, to go at 644. And, and I said, they won't do it. And so then they came back to me and said, 
okay, we'll give you feature film status and everybody else television film. And I said, no, you think, what kind of person do you think I am? Get out of here. Goodbye. So after NBC, when I tried to get into 644, that's when they refused to let me in. And then you had to sue your way in. Then I had to sue my way in. But this was actually sort of funny. I mean, it wasn't looking back, you know, it wasn't funny at the time, but get to the, went to the National Labor Relations Board. And Alan King really helped me on that. I mean, they were trying. He was trying to hire me, and there was, and somebody was coming and taking my money every week. You know, I, he kept me on set because he said, "This is how you'll have a case." And then when they realized when I got in there, I'm from such a legal family. What a mistake! So they said, "Here's your card," and the government said, "Not so fast," because it was the Reagan years, and Reagan was trying to, you know, blow out union. I mean, it was bust unions, but also. It was a clothes shop, so, and it just went on forever. It went on forever, and then I won, and I was, um, but I was blacklisted, you know, I, Pyrrhic victory. I yeah, um, I imagine it was won not a battle. hiring hall, as they say, so it made it very difficult for you to get work after that? It was, I couldn't get any work, I couldn't, yeah. you know, I mean, there were a couple of people I knew, but I, during that whole period, it was, there wasn't any. It was just impossible. In fact, they would. I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna get into any detail about this, but yeah, it was just. It's it's typical. It's like whistleblowing, and you can't. You know, you're you're blacklisted, and that's the end of that story. So, really, I was kind of shocked by those things over again because I didn't understand consequences. I thought you go do the right thing, and then that's it. You know, and everything's fine. No. So just sticking with the union yeah. thread for a moment. You would later become a member in good standing. You would uh, go on to do a ton of television work. You would join the, the executive board for what then would become 600, representing your, the, the still photographers. What, what are some issues that the still photographers specifically have, have faced over the last couple of decades? It's really since digital. I mean, I mean the, the issues of, as I stated earlier, the issues with still photographers, the first issue has always been not being, really being part of the filmmaking process itself, being sort of this outsider, this one, um, this one person, this one person department, essentially. There's always been, they, they were viewed, I think it's better now, but they were really viewed as uh, just uh, hacks. Most of the, you know, the still, I mean, I'm in the old days, I think for the most part, people were not, there was, there was very little respect. And now it's really impossible because everybody's got a digital camera, and and, and also not only that, you can you can take frames out of the, you know, the red. You can take frame, you know, digital frames out. They can, unless one of the things that I did as the as a rep when I did these shows, my idea was I'd set up these photography shows at, for local six hundred of the eastern region. My idea was to make the artistry. Of the, of the still photographers more visible, to up the ante a little bit, to say, okay, these are not just people who are, who are snapping away at nothing. They're not just taking pictures. They're, they're taking portraits. They're doing, th and they're, they're people with talent and skill and craft. And uh, so that, that was the point. And in fact, the still photographers are facing the chopping block on this last time because a lot of the producers don't want to, uh, they don't want to pay the money. They don't think they need them anymore. I mean, maybe for specials, for things that, for marquees and, you know, whatever. Um, but basically, on-set photography, you, when you get to the lower tiers, they've knocked it, you know, they've knocked it out or they get paid almost nothing. Well, everybody gets paid almost nothing on the lower tiers. But um, 
the last round of negotiations, and I'm just going to say this straight out, Stephen Poster had said the still photographers were on the chopping block, so I made sure I got on we got a campaign, and we had all pe these people write to him because we thought, it, it, actually, he didn't just say it, he had it on a sheet out of the NEB, the National Executive Board, and, and uh, so I rallied people, and I said, look, we gotta do something, you know? I said, I, I warned people, I said, you're not gonna be working on, because they could sell us down the river. So we got everybody from different areas to write letters to, to Stephen. And then he calls me saying, I never said that. I never said, and I said, well, yes, you did. You know, you were, I mean, you, you said we were on the chopping block. And frankly, not just me, but people who were involved, we made sure, we embarrassed him into doing a, I'm straight out saying this, into getting, he'll deny this, sorry, Stephen, but, you know, I don't, this would not have happened had we not done this work. Meaning I and a couple of other, you know, a few other still photographers. That so Stephen, they came up with the idea of doing a presentation for the producers with photographs and uh, all those work that had been done by a certain major the uh, feature you know, certain photographers who do features, well-known photographers in the features industry, the features area, and uh, and then kept them up during the negotiations so that they could see they could actually look at the work and they could see that this was really, that these people were really talented and that there was some purpose for it. And that saved the still photographers. But that's not gonna go on for, I mean, wherever they can see cuts. You know, there are gonna be cuts, at, the writing's on the wall for a lot of people in this industry with digital. You know, you don't need the same kind of, you don't need kind of the same kind of staffing. Just don't. And you have a lot of people coming up now, coming up now, a lot of people who are <laughs> coming in, you know, are in the entertainment business who don't even wanna belong to it. I mean, they don't see the, they can do a lot of things on their own. And they don't see the purpose in, in unions. I try to explain why unions are necessary, but. You said something very interesting there that because of the new digital cameras that they can just take a beautiful digital, a single beautiful digital frame out of what they're shooting exactly. with their glass that's already perfectly framed with the actor, close up, all that kind of stuff. Done. And that's a big part of what you were typically getting for them. That's right. I think that I think that it's a uh, it's going to be a vanishing breed on sets. Really, I mean, I don't know how much longer they've got. They, they how big a percentile is that of what you're supposed to be getting on set? Because you also get shots of the crew and all that. You get well. That would that would. By the way, that's something I didn't mention earlier. That my favorite work really was always the the stuff that didn't have to do with the with the <laughs> production. I mean, it did have. I mean, it was it was behind the scenes. Behind the scenes is always most. I think the most interesting work. Yeah, there are, are other things, but it has to do with, you know, it comes down to money with people. So so if they don't have to pay, you know, somebody, or, or they're not, a lot of times they'll just say they're not really interested in talent. You have to throw it in their faces. They don't care. That's the thing about being a still photographer in the film industry. The one major thing is that they, that they don't really value those stills. It's not, it's not called the still photography, you know, industry. <laughs> it's called the motion picture industry. So moving pictures, not still pictures. And so, understandably, you're not, you're not that, you're not really critical to it. And you touched on the cameras are getting cheaper and better, and you need less skill to use them. And, you know, Everybody's and a still photographer There was a days. time when almost nobody would, you know, very, very, very few people had a professional camera, but now every every cell phone has uh, got a, a the other camera thing is, taking ability of some sort. The other thing is that people are going onto sets. We try to we've tried to control it. 
They come with their cell phones or small cameras. They shoot. They put up stuff that are like even spoilers. You know, they put it on the right. Instagram. They put a, they send them everywhere. And nobody's, you know, this is, uh, it's tough. It used it's to be much easier to control with film. You would have to process it. It was on my production sure did. company. I mean, it was, and then you had to, I mean, it was a whole other, a whole other deal. I, and protecting these pictures, I mean, digitally, it's difficult anyway. Well, even on once they get get up there. There has been di uh, conversations out there circulating for at least five years now um, about, you know, especially within the, the halls of 600, the letters that go out about, you know, not taking personal stills on set as a matter of professionalism, as a matter of courtesy to the producers, as a matter of uh, courtesy to the set photographer. Um, I mean, can you expand on that a little bit on how that how that came around or where there might have been problems that have had spawned those things, uh, those those letters going out? Well, the still we 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 complained, and I know during the I mean I I was a rep until last until the, through 2013, and that was one of the th ways that we decided that we would try to stop this. Um, I mean, it was it's quite simple that people were coming, even even background would shoot. I mean. But but the thing that I found is that it didn't it stopped it. There's no way to st completely stop it, because you you have producers doing it. You have everybody doing it. We're in a culture now of yeah. I've got to take a couple of photos and put it on Facebook. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it's, there, there's no. I mean, there really is. N no, I mean, you can say to people you're going to be fired. I mean, I suppose there are some sets that are so closed. There there have to be some directors that that people wouldn't dare do it with. But for the most part, there's no control. Are there any hard and fast rules that you can say that are where it is okay? Like we're at the trucks, for instance, you know, so we're going to take photos of our G&E crew having a good time. Is that okay? Oh, sure, that's fine. The other thing you're dealing with is too, you, that, that's a very good question because when you're asking people, especially when I get like first ADs who can be the bane of still photographers in any case, because the first AD, when you were asking earlier, where do you go, you know, you need help, you go to the first. And and the first is I'll get you the shot later, or I'll do such. You know, the first first is trying to just make the day, and that person is not going to. But you're really lowest on. Yes, on list. their on yes on their on their list. If they're even, you know, not even on the she list. She says with a we're, snarl. We're, on, <laughs> <laughs> we're not. We're just below the list. We haven't even made it onto the list. Um, so well, that this AD you, would let you do whatever you wanted on set. I'm talking. Oh, about you're great. Well, this is like, <laughs> you you're trying to sort of. Uh, not be too difficult about it because you don't you don't want to alienate people whom you need to have help you have help you, and so I mean I've had things where I've come in to shoot something and suddenly there's an AD shooting and I'm thinking don't do that you know I mean it's a shy because the other thing is and I'm talking about some behind the scenes things where I, I've come in uh, I'm even on some assignments, like some TV guide thing or something coming in, someone's doing, and I say, look, I don't want, it's my shot, uh, al along with anything else. It's, I don't like people stealing my shots. But that's a, other, that's a side thing. That's not. Because there are going to be a lot of entertainment professionals listening to this, to this podcast, um, I do want to just make sure that we hit a point as to where is this okay? Like, where is it okay for non-set photographers to be taking photos on set? Okay, I would say that anytime you see a still photographer shooting, with their, with, when they're shooting something, don't shoot it. I mean, that's, that's probably my best piece of advice. Uh, if you want to shoot your crew or people come on and you're doing something off, fine. Or you're doing, you know, some, somebody's fooling around and doing something. I, I guess the only thing that I can say is don't come near, don't shoot what the still photographer's doing. That's the one thing that I think is really the, 
I mean, the standard. I mean, that's probably the best answer I can I can give you. What about when the the set electrician maybe over the course of a two month show buddies up with one of the talent, okay, lead actor or actress, and they want to take a set photo generally and in the eyes of the union, is that okay? I don't think the union. I think they're not supposed to do it, but people, but but it it just happens all the time. You're not gonna. They're just. Again, there isn't control, and you really have to use your judgment. If somebody's coming on, if you have, if you have a crew member who's consistently taking shots, you know, and who's to the, the point where I mean, of incredible distraction. If you have somebody like that, then that that person's got to stop. Then it's got to be a rule, not none. But otherwise, these rules are, are not hard and fast. I, is there? I would say maybe a hard and fast rule is don't shoot the talent unless they've given you permission to That's do right. so. That's right. That's absolutely right. Don't involve me in any photograph, even if I'm in deep background. Just don't do it. That's that's exactly right. The other thing is that we don't, uh, apart from the fact that people are just putting stuff up anywhere. You don't want you don't want if someone if you you're getting credit for doing work on a set. You don't want someone else's lousy pictures up there. I mean, not just the fact that the the control of the studio or the networks and the, and the actors themselves. It's just, you also have a personal stake in this as a photographer. It's a, it's a very, very difficult issue. And I don't know other than to say that, I think the, I think the best advice I can give is to, is to really show some respect, show some courtesy, ask the still photographer. You know, and don't just pull out a camera and start shooting all over the place. I mean, generally, if people ask me, I mean, when people have asked me, Unless it's something you absolutely can't. I mean, I also have things. Sometimes you have parents of the talent or somebody from the, you know, someone's coming in and I'm doing a shot. Like we do some crime scene and some person's shooting the crime and saying, no, you can't do that. In other words, it's, just, it's something that I, I have to have that's just mine. I mean, in other words, people are also causing problems with this. I think you need to ask the, as you would anyone else, if I need, you know, something, some help somewhere on set, I go to the appropriate person. If I want to do something that's not my job, I ask that person, who, the person whose job it is, if, if I can do that or can I move something, you know, just quickly or so, or can you do such and such? Uh, and frankly, if people want pictures, they should ask the still photographer to do it. I mean, I think that that's, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a little looser. I shouldn't be. And then a lot of people, meaning that if somebody wants, I mean, it's, as long as they're not really interfering with me and and major rules of the set, uh, I'm okay. I think there's a common conception that if you ask the still photographer to shoot who's working for the producer, chances are you're not going to get released to that photo of you and the talent without it running up the food chain, and then there's a chance you don't get it at all, so why not just pass your phone over to your friend and say, hey, can you snap this shot for me? You have a point. <laughs> I, you have a point, but I think that the, there are ways around You can talk to people in advance. You can say, look, you know, this is a this is a photograph that somebody really wants, and I've I've said I'd do it, and I and so and so needs to have it. I mean, that person I promised the person, or this is they're expecting it. I think that that's uh, it's it's manageable. That it doesn't have to get into a big deal. You just have to remember, or somebody has to remind you. You give you give your information. You just say, this, get in touch with me personally if there's a problem. And I mean, oh. that's that's the answer for that. Understood. In my way of doing it. That's a great answer. <laughs> Finally, I gave a great answer. Oh, come on now. <laughs> the equipment has radically changed during your career from film to digital. Um, 
were you a big proponent of developing your own film? Uh, you're going through a whole workflow. Oh, you I love the it. computers now. What, what's where are you on that? I, I was a big darkroom person, as I said. So I loved the process of the darkroom. That magic, the magic moment with the with the picture. The, the did I get it or did did I not get it? You got it. So because I was such a big darkroom person, I also um, I was I was devastated when digital came in. Uh, in fact, I remember the day that this darkroom was in New York that I was using in New York City uh, to do. I did all of my my Law and Order crime scene book. I I printed down in this darkroom, latent image it was called. And I said, due to digital photography, and I was working on Law and Order Criminal Intent. And I went, <laughs> I'd gone back to my apartment. We were on, we were, we were close by. I'd gone back to my apartment uh, for an hour or so, and I got my mail, and I saw that it said, due to digital photography, we are closing latent image. And I went back, and I was cli crying on the grip truck. I was sitting and crying that the dark room had shut down, and there was, and I, I called him. I said, "What am I going to do?" And then my sister said to me, "Look, I start looking for the best digital equipment you can find, the, whatever you need, you know." And so, and then I generated a story in the New York Times about the close of this dark room and then how we were the last generation of still photographers that I was part of that. We did. It wasn't just about me. It was Avedon's printer was down. Everybody was printing in this place. A lot of well-known photographers. And in the end, I generated the story. And I, two years later, I said, I take everything back because I love digital. Digital, digital. I was always a black and white printer. Digital is a great tool for artists. It's not photography as we knew it. I mean, photography was fixed. It's of the moment. You couldn't, you know, no matter what you did with that piece of that that's that emit with that uh, with the chrome or with a with the negative, you couldn't change the fundamental, the basic basic negative. Digital is movement. It's pixels. It's all about change. So I mean, it's all about manipulation. You have to be very, very clear to be if you want to be a purist. You have to be very good. And even then, because what's pure? I mean, what is it in digital? Each camera has its own little quirky things. And though that that did happen in in uh, traditional photography, uh, w what was on the what was on the film was on the film. That's it. You can play around, you can change it in the printing, make it look different, but but basically it's always there, forever as is. It's always there. Digital, no such thing. But I learned color printing. And that color, learning colors, one of the reasons I got the uh, Yankee Stadium commission was my color printing. <laughs> you never know how life is gonna move. Well, let's talk I a little bit about that. You You were named I wasn't named. I was commissioned. No. Well, I'm gonna go back. Oh. What, uh, what digital, what digital camera did you decide was the best digital camera on the market? I suppose I should ask before we move on. Oh, at the time I was working with Canons. I think at the, at the time I wasn't. There weren't them. It was 2005. Uh, I got uh, Canon, whatever it was. I think it may have been the 20D or something, and then I moved to the 5D. But it wasn't just that. It was the darkroom equipment, so that I had to get. You know, the best printer I could find, which at the time was the Epson Stylus 4000, Epson Stylus Pro 4000, which I love. I still have that printer. And monitors, I got a, I, I, I got a roll drum scanner, um, just everything you can think of that would be. And it was, it was very frustrating with digital initially because photography, again, is that moment. You s it happens before it happens. And with digital, you'd have the delay in the camera. You'd have that little delay, and so you'd have to think, like, Three steps ahead. It was so frustrating. It was so awful. I mean, in the 
first part of it for me. A steep learning curve, but then... Well, you know, it wasn't so much the learning curve. It was also the technical stuff. I mean, the learning... Yeah, there w it, for me, even in... I taught myself Photoshop because I knew the darkroom so well. I mean, I may not do it the way other people do it. Everybody's got their own techniques with... But Photoshop was based on those original... It was based on... ...darkroom techniques. So, exactly. So once I sort of learned how to hit whatever buttons I needed, or what, I, I do it, and I do my own... I print the way that I print. And I mean, people always say, you know, what secret do you have? And I said, no secret, it's just what I see. So the answer to that is that in fact, digital is very exciting. And that's A. And B, that's the way of the, you know, that's life. You know, I mean, it's, everything's gone. You can't even get, it's very hard to find photo paper, traditional paper anymore. I think I still have a whole pack of 8x10s that I ever want tucked away in a dark part of my closet yeah. that I haven't Save seen it. in forever, but uh, I'm sure it's still there. Just that I hope to use one day, and, you know, um, hopefully it doesn't go bad by the time I actually get around to using it. Well, the fact of the matter is that even the chemicals, well, there'll be a you know, sort of figure out a way, fixture, you know, a way to fix, you know, to fix, no pun intended, your uh, your work to, to process and, and, and then be in the dark room, but it's pretty much over. I mean, people are hanging on by their fingernails, but the reality is it's hard to get film. The paper's gone. The chemicals, the, the dark rooms. I mean, unless you've got, you know, you still keep your own dark room. It's, 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 it's a completely different world. And this is, this is the infancy. God knows where this is going to take us. So you were commissioned as yes. the Yankees' official photographer for the building of the new Yankee Stadium which hurts my heart. I wish you had been commissioned for the new city field as a lifelong Mets oh, fan. Okay. But sure, I guess, you know, it could be a job for the Yankees, whoever they are. <laughs> <laughs> it, it must have been a very cool project. Two or three years at a, the construction site and all that. Those photos will be seen at Cooperstown, at Yankee Stadium, and books, and for oh. ever, one would think. That, um, any interesting stories of being, uh, you know, on, on the uh, huge construction site? It was uh, the single greatest commission that I've ever had. I mean, it, it incorporated every single thing that I, that, and anyone could want as an artist. I mean, to, to wake up every day and go someplace and, and just be able to take any photograph and just say, okay, this is what I want to shoot today. A lot, of, a lot of interesting stories. I found the most interesting part was, was, was getting to know the construction workers and the, and uh, because I think my, in my experience, we don't value people who work. We don't value people enough who work with their hands, or do things. You know, manual labor. What we, what we see. I mean, in my in my world. I mean, in, and I think that people don't realize they come into a building, for instance, and they take it for granted. Okay, nothing's going to fall down. But, <laughs> but when you actually start working, you see the talent, the skill, the dedication. And a Yankee Stadium, whether or not they were Yankees fans, a lot weren't. There you go, Brian. You know, a lot of people were Mets fans, and they'd be walking around. There, they were still I thrilled. I love to hear that. Excellent. Oh no, there were plenty of Mets fans. There were uh, were amongst the workers, but there was a sense that this was Yankee Stadium, that it was historic, and so everybody was in there thinking, you know, everybody had that sense all the time. It was palpable. I mean, there was a feeling that that was another great, excuse me, great thing about it. Going, Pride. going to a place where people were incredibly happy. They were. You know, they were jolly, almost. You'd, it was it was tremendous work, but I met some of the most interesting people I have ever met, ever, anywhere, at that stadium. 
I all these ideas that I had about you know these things that I didn't even realize that I had sort of prejudices of I don't know what else to call them or I mean just or there was a disconnect between what I well, how I thought people were and how they were and in fact if it weren't for the construction workers I never would have gotten the work the work that I got they saved me and they but I also I had to earn it you know they saw me put on a harness they, you know, I stand there and say, I'm going up, you know, and they'd say, all right, you got that harness on, you're willing to do it, we're willing to take you. And we, there, was there any of the salty old crew of, you know, why are you here, lady? Uh, kind initially, of stuff, it was the same thing like anything. You know, it came in and also, again, because I was the, uh, <laughs> the you know, I was a sing had a singular job, and I'm also a female, and there were a lot of, there, there were women up there, but not that, not that many. I mean, it's better now, and even there, but it's still... In, in construction, but it was mostly men, and uh, there was a bit of that. But as they saw that I was willing, I mean, I would do things like I would make sure that I had set my own schedule. But I would come. I remember being surprised that they thought of me. I guess initially, they were surprised. I remember coming up on a, in a, during a snowstorm, and and these guys saying to me, "What are you doing up here? You, you could just be in bed." And I said, "What are you doing up here?" And they said, "We have to be up here." And I said, "I have to, I be, have up to here. be up here." Yeah. What are you talking about? That's my job. <laughs> but but in somehow in their heads, they thought of me in a different way. You know, they thought of me, and, was, and then it came. What happened was just like anything else in life. If you become friends with people, and you become it wasn't any it it, it was organic. You know, it was kind of they're working, I'm working. They were also, I have a style of working where I, I'm really an editorial photographer. I am not a studio photographer. I mean, and Break the, down the, the difference between the two. Editorial is where is, I don't like setups. In other words, I like to shoot what I'm seeing. You know, I, have, I like to shoot the moment. It's more it's reportage. And it's uh, as opposed to going into a studio or setting things up with all this lighting and stuff. I don't, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what happens in sort of that just the moment. And I had a lot of compliments about that. I had one thing with the, the, the chief electrician at the stadium who said to me, she was named a very, very well-known photographer who was coming in for another building, came in with her, with about 10 people, and he said, and, he, and she said, you got to stop the work. He said, lady, if you can't take a picture, get the hell out of my, get the, oh yeah, this is very, you know, get the hell out of my place. And uh, my point is. Thank you for editing that content. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because he said the point is the thing about it is my guys you don't you don't bother anybody you just take so then it got to the point where they would that was much better for me I didn't want them to be you know I didn't want them have, I didn't want all these setup shots and some in some ways sometimes I had to do it because the guys would want various things but on the whole it was fantastic and I got all this exercise and I was like mountain climbing I was on top the first day I went onto the top of the the scoreboard. Everybody in the stadium stopped, and my legs were like scoreboard was was so so thin at the time, and I have to say I was frightened when I first when I first got up there. Then I became addicted to it. I got past that, and everybody in the stadium they were all taking shots. There were a whole bunch of shots of it, standing, looking really afraid. But in the end, I climbed everywhere I couldn't. And when it was over, oh, here's an example of how families just the way. It happens in the film in the film industry. If you spend a lot of time with people, it becomes a, a family circumstance. I mean, everybody, day in and day out, you're seeing people, and they're telling you about their lives. And they do. So when the stadium was opening, we were 
they had a pre-opening night and everybody, all the workers were involved, invited to that and everybody came and, and a bunch of us were standing in the, in just uh, under gate four and we saw all these people coming in and we were annoyed. Like, what are you doing coming into our house? <laughs> who are all these people? Who are all these people? It really was, it was, it was just so odd. And everybody was feeling it. Everybody was going, I said, who are these people? It's like, get out. Don't, I mean, that's how proprietary you become when you're, when you really, in, if you really care about something, you're really involved in something. And it's, a, it, it took a while to sort of, uh, you know, it took a while to get past that. And there always is this moment where I'll run into people just sh by sheer chance. I'm walking down the street and somebody's working a project and say, Jessica, you know, and it's like, and it, I, I think that everyone who worked on, at Yankee Stadium will remember it always. I mean, I am positive of that. And they would say, my, my children know, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren will know that I built Yankee Stadium. Pretty extraordinary. I mean, even for you, you got to admit, even as a Mets fan, I'm telling you, there were Mets fans in there, so this was... It was the idea of it. I mean, that this was really concrete. <laughs> Every pun intended. <laughs> this is it. Let's go, Mets. So, Jessica, I hope <laughs> our setup here has fit into your workflow of, of coming in here and talking to us and uh, sharing with uh, sharing the information. Now, I have to go about the most frightening part of my job. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. Where I have to take stills of the world-class oh still God. photographer. <laughs> and uh, it, I have to say, it's a little intimidating. But, and I'm uh, sure you hate being photographed. I do it, especially since I'm... I take the photographs. I don't want to be photographed. I, exactly right. Well, you know, every still photographer. That's like been the that. truth of, every, true of everybody. We do we talk to DPs. Yeah. I'm behind the camera. I don't yeah, want to be right. photographed. Well, Jessica, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming in. Why can't you just do one of those icons for me? I mean, they can never... Is <laughs> <laughs> an icon? A, what do you call it? A, a, what, a meme of you? or No, what do you call the thing? It's not an icon. You know what I'm talking about? The avatar. The avatar. Yeah, oh, there you go. Avatar. Like, uh, like we has. We're not that technical. We have to take the photo. <laughs> Thanks, right. Jessica. Okay. Thank you. So thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Uh, that was Jessica Burstein, and we had a great time. And uh, we're going to wrap it up and get out of here real quick. But uh, just wanted to let everybody know to check out our site, www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Google searches, check us out. Drop five stars and a comment if you're on iTunes. Uh, check us out on Stitcher, all that good stuff. And until then, kick back for one more week because Brian and I will be back busting each other's chops. That's what we do.